Hi, Microgreens listeners. We're really excited to bring you a live podcast taping today. I'm Raka Mitra, one of the hosts of Microgreens. This podcast aims to tell stories of plants, microbes, and the people who study them. We've come a long way from our start in 2019 with interviews from the Molecular Plant Microbe Interactions Meeting in Glasgow, Scotland. Since then, a lot has happened. My co-host Tess Diet and I made a few episodes, and this past year I have had the amazing opportunity to work with two new excellent co-hosts, Dominique Holt-Appels and Tiff Mack. I have so loved working with these bright scientists and podcasters and have decided that it's time to turn the show over to them. This is my last episode, and moving forward, you'll hear their voices and their stories, which we hope are the stories of all of us. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. Hi, um, so I'm Raka Mitra, and I'm one of the hosts and producers of the MPMI Microgreens podcast. Can everybody listen, hear me okay? Can you thumbs up? Yep, okay, cool. So I'm a professor of biology at Carleton College, which is a small liberal arts college in Minnesota. And uh, we're really happy to have you all here to watch a live podcast recording. I started this podcast in 2019 in advance of the MPMI meeting in Glasgow, Scotland. And so it's really cool that we're taping the show at the 2023 MPMI meeting in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, Microgreens is made by a team of folks now, and there are two other podcast hosts seated at the table who I would like to have introduce themselves. Um, so, hi, I'm Tiff. Um, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Novo Nordisk Cen um, Foundation Center for Biosustainability at the Danish Technical University in Denmark. Um, I, my research is on um, microbial community interactions, especially in the context of the food system and the relevance, especially to MPMI, is that I'm also very much interested in uh, soil and plant microbe um, community interactions. Hi, and my name is Dominique. I am a postdoctoral researcher at UC Berkeley, where I study with Professor Koskela the interaction of bacteriophages and plant pathogens. We are interested in how we can use phages as a biocontrol strategy, but also how they modulate microbiomes and what evolutionary trade-offs there are between phage resistance and bacterial virulence to plants. All right. So for the Microgreens podcast, we aim to tell stories about plants, microbes, and the people who study them. And so today we're going to interview Tessa Birch-Smith, who's the Associate Editor-in-Chief of the MPMI Journal, and ask her about the story behind a manuscript. We'd love for audience members to think of questions. So if you look at the slide in front of you, there's a QR code, which is a little black and white digital box. Um, on that slide, if you aim your phone camera at that code, it will take you to a Google form where you can ask questions. Uh, we'll leave that slide up, so if you think of one, now is not your only moment to take a picture of the QR code, and I'll keep track of them and ask them at the end once our hosts have been able to ask our slate of questions. So with that, you ready? Yes. Let's start. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to start first by asking Tessa a few questions. So, hi Tessa. Hi. 
I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your day job? How'd you get involved in MPMI? And how did you become Associate Editor-in-Chief? Okay, so it's a pleasure to be here and to share this um, podcast with all of you. So I am an Associate Member and Principal Investigator at the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center in St. Louis, Missouri. And if you're not familiar with it, it's, it's actually the largest non-profit plant research institute in the world. And there I am, a plant cell and molecular biologist who happens to have a long-standing interest in plant virus interactions, and I use viruses as tools in a lot of my research. I, for my um, graduate work, I actually studied plant virus R protein interactions, and I was in that first wave of people who actually had clones of R genes and did some of the early protein localization studies of R proteins. Oh, wow. So my background with <laughs> plant-virus um, interactions is actually quite long. Huh, that's so, so cool. Yes. <laughs> so I, I was um, in the age when people said you couldn't clone, um, you couldn't express R proteins because they were very unstable. So that was mm -hmm. my PhD thesis, was to express an R protein. Huh. So <laughs> that was fun. So shortly after I started my postdoc, I was asked to review papers for MPMI, and I did so. And I did many of them, apparently. I became a pretty frequent reviewer. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually, as soon as I got my faculty position, then I was an assistant professor at the University of Tennessee. Within a year or so, I was asked to become an associate editor at MPMI. And um, so I did that job, again, frequent reviewer. <laughs> and eventually, I was asked to become a senior editor. And little did I know that behind the scenes, every time a review is received, the senior editors grade it. They give it scores. Oh, oh really? <laughs> yes, <laughs> really. <laughs> and so when I, I, I arrived on the editorial board, I found out that I had an almost perfect score as a reviewer. <laughs> wow, that's impressive. <laughs> Thank you. And so I became a senior editor, and eventually Jean Harris took over as the editor-in-chief at MPMI, and she did a fantastic job there, staying on for an extra year due to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so when she was looking to come off as the editor-in-chief, she contact me, contacted me and said, look, you've been with the journal for a long time, you know about how it works, you know what's going on behind the scenes. Would you be interested in taking over as editor-in-chief? I said, yeah, I know what it's like behind the scenes. So I can't say yes <laughs> off the bat. <laughs> and so, so Jean sort of created this position where mm -hmm. I was the associate editor-in-chief. Yeah. Um, and I can tell you a bit more about what that entailed. And so I've been the associate, the first associate editor-in-chief for MPMI. So I mm -hmm. stayed with Jean through her last year. And I have onboarded, <laughs> quite successfully, I might say, the new um, editor-in-chief, Chief um, Tim Friesen. Mm -hmm. So I have overlapped with the two editors-in-chief. Yep. Um, yeah, so that's, that's my story at MPMI. Wow, that's, that's very impressive. So you basically started as a postdoctoral researcher, doing reviews, getting your faculty position, being asked as a senior editor, and being fabulous about it, being amazing and look at where you are now <laughs> that's that's an incredible story and 
This is also like the perfect way um, to go into what we are excited about today because you are the perfect person to tell us what is the story of a manuscript. Because I don't know about you, Tiff, but I've always wondered what happens with my manuscript when I press that submit button. Because let's be honest here, we have put our hearts, our souls, literally our lives in those 10, 15, or 20 whatever pages. It takes us months or even years of grand writing, repeating experiments in the lab over and over again, gathering data, running statistics, and then I'm not even talking about writing that paper, editing figures, making sure that the story fits. And when that moment is finally there, that we can submit our paper, it just disappears into the <laughs> black box of the journal. Where does it go? What happens to it? And I'm sure that the audience joining us here today or the people who are listening at home are asking themselves the same question. So Tessa, please tell us what <laughs> happens to our manuscript when we press that submit button. Happy to. So the first thing that happens when you hit the submit button is it gets sent to people like us and mm -hmm. the professional staff of editorial production at, um, well, <laughs> this is a bit complicated, but there are professional <laughs> staff behind the scenes who actually handle the manuscript. Uh -huh. And so they first do a quality check. Have you, does everything meet the requirements that were stated on submission? Did all the figures mm -hmm. come through? If you said you had a cover letter, is it really back there in the system? Can everybody who needs to see it, see it? Yeah. So that's the first thing that happens. Okay. And then after that, it gets sent to the editor-in-chief. Okay. And the editor-in-chief does a few very important things. I'll say there are three important things that the editor-in-chief does, mm -hmm. in no particular order. The first thing the editor-in-chief does is um, they assess the manuscript to see if it is a good fit for MPMI. So we have our scope. Uh -huh. We recently revised it. So the editor-in-chief looks over the manuscript and says, does this fit with what the scope of the journal is, what the mm -hmm. kinds of manuscripts we want to publish? Yeah. Is it too much on the pathogen side and would be a better fit for a different journal mm -hmm. um, than for MPMI? So once you've passed that fit, great. If you don't pass, you might get a are transferred to a different journal that's in the family of journals that MPMI belongs to, mm -hmm. which is the um, American Phytopathological Society, so the APS yeah, okay. journals. Yeah. So if your manuscript gets transferred, it's not, it's not a saying that something's wrong with your manuscript. It's simply mm -hmm. saying that we think this journal would be a better fit the work you're trying to publish. Okay, few, because that happened a few times to me, and <laughs> I was always worried that my manuscript was not good enough. But nope. Okay. Yeah, that's not what it means. It just means that we think that it would have a better chance mm -hmm. of fit the audience for a different journal better. Yeah. Okay. So the next, the other thing that the editor-in-chief um, checks for, importantly, is a plagiarism check. Mm -hmm. So we run it through software, and we decide are there problematic issues with plagiarism in the manuscript? Mm -hmm. Focus is given particularly to the introduction and the discussion because it's easy to see how you can get duplications when you're writing materials and methods. 
so we pay less attention to those sections. So with a very critical eye, we look to see what exactly is being pointed out as plagiarism. If there are issues with plagiarism, you will get your manuscript backed with an immediate reject, telling you we found these problems, yeah. you need to address them before we'll assess the manuscript yeah. further. That makes total sense, that makes total sense. Yes. And then, so if you've made it through these two rounds of screening, the editor-in-chief then identifies the senior editors at MPMI who will then handle your manuscript through the review process. Okay, and so I'm curious about these senior editors because who are they actually? Who is handling our manuscripts? So they are persons from the community mm -hmm. who are for lack of a better word, I kid you not, a bit senior. <laughs> um, old? <laughs> not old. What, 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 we'll say experience. Senior uh -huh. in terms of experience. Because I like to think when I became a senior editor, I wasn't that old yet. I like to fool myself and say I'm not that old now. But anyway. So these are persons who have experience in a specific area in the field. So they have topic expertise that we are looking for. So yeah. what we do is we go over what are the articles that have been coming into us in recent years, and the board is not a fixed thing. It's quite dynamic. So if we find suddenly we're getting a lot of articles in one area and we don't have expertise, we go out and recruit new board members. So you find that we always have people who can handle a manuscript that's coming in. So they have requisite expertise in a given area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so, um, what is their role, actually, of, 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 of those senior editors? Once they receive the manuscripts, what do they do? So, what, they, what the job of a senior editor is, is to see a manuscript through the process, the peer review process, and to make a decision on whether or not an article should be published. So, the senior editor should get the manuscript, read it over, look at it, and first, the senior editor makes a judgment. Should I reject this manuscript out of hand? Because the senior editor is an expert in mm -hmm. the subject matter, so they should be the person to first identify if there's a big problematic flaw in the manuscript. Yeah. For example, are the, is all the work missing a crucial control that mm -hmm. is the norm in the field or the standard in the field? With an issue like that, the senior editor would say, this is not fit for publication. Once you've corrected this flaw, then you can send it back. Yeah, so if, never forget your negative controls. <laughs> sometimes even your positive <laughs> controls. Oh, wow. Surprises. <laughs> yes, or sometimes the statistical analysis is absent or mm -hmm. weak, then that's cause for the senior editor to send it back to the authors immediately. Yeah. If the article passes that first inspection by the senior editor, then the senior editor chooses reviewers, and I know this is going to be a big bone of contention going forward, but the senior <laughs> editor selects the reviewers that they think would do a good job of reviewing the manuscript. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. so basically the, um, the editors look in their own um, network for, to look for people who might be a good fit to be a reviewer in this case. That is partially correct. The, the senior editor would like to have as broad a perspective on the manuscript as possible. So while starting with your own network is good, we try to also include 
people who are different, people who may have a different perspective, but who also have expertise in the subject matter in the manuscript. That's actually perfect uh, as a segue into our next question, actually. You've spoken a lot about the, the kind of technical aspect of the decision um, of a senior editor, and then going into then the more human aspect and selecting reviewers. Um, I know MPMI has a strong commitment towards DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, can you speak a little bit more about how, what you see the, um, the role of senior editors, ed yourself as associate, um, as senior editor-in-chief, has um, overall in, in publishing as well as um, more as like broader as MPMI's commitment as a whole? Yes, so that's a great question. So starting with Gene, an initiative that Tim has carried on, is that MPI, MPMI has been very deliberate in trying to broaden the diversity of our editorial board, of the editors, the associate editors, and we hope that leads to a diversifying of our reviewer um, base. Mm -hmm. So as an illustration, our editorial board, including Tim and myself, we have 27 members as senior editors on the board, and 13 of them are women. So that wow. is great because we've more or less achieved gender parity on our board. So that was a goal that Jean had started and we've arrived um, there. So yay, MPMI. That's amazing. We also pay a lot of attention to the geographical um, locations of of our editorial board. So MPMI is the journal of the International Society of Molecular Plant Microbe Interactions. And so we pay attention to having an international board, not a North American and European board. Yeah. So we've been striving to identify um, experts in other regions of the world. We've had some success in that and we, mm -hmm. we've tried to sort of build up our membership and encourage early career scientists from different regions outside you know, North America and Europe so that we can actually have a more diverse board so that we are truly mm -hmm. you know, the journal of an international society. Wow, that's so, amazing. That must not be easy. It is not, no. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I think th this meeting is definitely a step in the right direction if we look at our different speakers and where they represent, where they're from. Mm -hmm. And the reason we want to have this diversity is not for the sake of diversity, is so that we can support the science that's going on all mm -hmm. around the world. I mean, there's a lot of great science that's outside the centers you know, of traditional academia. Yeah. There's real-world science. There's a lot of real-world MPMI science going on because, you know, we have to feed people everywhere in the world. And so by having a diverse board, we think we can attract that science to the journal and also have reviews and views that understand the conditions mm -hmm. under which different scientists are working. Mm -hmm. So the expectations from somebody like me who's at you know, a fancy center in the middle of the United States are not the same from somebody who's working in field conditions in a remote part of the world. Yeah, 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 that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. It's, it's amazing that you guys think about this, that you take this into account. Um, that, that's just fantastic. Yes, um, I think so. And credit to Jean for starting this initiative and to Tim for being very passionate about it and continuing it. That's just amazing. And 
Um, you also mentioned that it is important to have reviewers from all over the world. Um, so I wonder, like, I imagine that a lot of people who are listening to our podcast today um, are wondering how 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 can I become a, re a reviewer for MPMI? Great question. So believe it or not, <laughs> our <laughs> editor in chief Tim Friesen will have with him a little laptop where you can sign up to be a reviewer <laughs> for um, MPMI. So Tim, if you wave, if you see Tim, just. Tell him your name, um, your area of expertise, your contact information, and we can get you signed up. But seriously, um, we, we rely on people to volunteer their time. As a senior editor, because I still handle a lot of manuscripts, I spend a lot of time looking for reviewers. Um, sometimes it's not easy to find reviewers for a manuscript, especially those that seem to cross disciplines. Sometimes I go through nine or ten people telling me no. Um, to review a manuscript. If wow. you ever wonder why it takes long to get back your reviews, sometimes it's just hard to find reviewers. Huh. So most importantly, though, if you want to sign up as a reviewer, please let us know what your subject expertise is. Sometimes we get emails saying, hi, I'm a postdoc in so-and-so's lab, and I would like to be a reviewer. That's great. But what is your area of expertise? I can't send you a manuscript because <laughs> I, you, you're interested, right? I need mm -hmm. to be convinced that you're an expert and then I can go look you up on PubMed, see what your publications are, yeah. look at your track record, and then I can make an assessment about whether or not you would be a suitable reviewer for the manuscript because manuscripts are important. You, you said it, Dominique. Yeah. This is your blood, sweat, and tears, the currency of science. So... <laughs> We want to do a good job when we're handling the manuscripts. And speaking of reviews and the process of reviewing, can you talk a little bit more about what do you, how, um, what do you think the importance of peer review is? Well, peer review is imperfect, but it's the best system that we've been able to come up with as a community for um, vetting publications. Mm -hmm. So a big part of peer review, of course, are the reviews and um, we depend on them. So if you are doing a review, try to give it your best shot. It takes mm -hmm. a lot of effort to do a good review of a manuscript. For me, I read the manuscript, and then I go away for a few days to think about it. Sometimes I read other papers in the field so that I can see, is this meeting the standards? Mm -hmm. You know, has something similar be done, been done? Um, you know, it, it takes a while, and then to write the comments, sometimes I sit down for a whole day writing wow. re a sentence out, and then I erase it, or sometimes I write the draft, and I go away, and I come back, and I erase everything I've written, and I wow. start over again. Wow. So it, it, it's because I, I mean, I understand that this is mm -hmm. other people's work. This is not yeah. something you can do on the fly, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? So you have to take it seriously. So... um. So we, we trust that our reviewers are doing a thorough job of vetting the science, considering what is presented in front of them. And basically, you know, we don't want gatekeeping, right? We don't want mm -hmm. people to say, well, who are these people? They shouldn't be publishing on that topic. Yeah, We're yeah. looking for fair reviews. So that is where the senior editor role comes back into oh. focus. Oh, okay. So the senior editor is basically ensuring that a reviewer is doing a good job. 
Yes, so once the reviewers submit their comments, the senior editor reads the reviews carefully, mm-hmm. and then it is up to the senior reviewer to exercise their judgment about what are the next steps. Yeah. So the senior editor has a lot of options available. Um, they can you know, make a decision based on the reviews that they have, mm-hmm. or if the reviews are not what they were expected, not up to standard, you know, some reviews, unfortunately, occasionally you get a review that's two sentences long. Oh, wow, I mean, really? <laughs> it, it happens. It's not frequent because uh-huh. we do such a good job vetting our reviewers. Yeah. But occasionally you do get a review and you think this may not be the most thorough work. So I will yeah. send it out to maybe a third and a fourth reviewer for more information. Oh, okay. So... If the review is not sufficient, if the reviewer was, didn't have time or was lazy in this case, maybe even, um, the senior editor goes looking for other reviewers. Yes. So sometimes what happens is wh- when you're asked to either be the senior editor or the, um, the reviewer, you only see a paragraph of the manuscript before you accept. And it's happened to me where I've, I've accepted manuscripts to review and then when I get the full thing, I realize, oh, but figures three to seven are genetics. And I'm not a geneticist. So I cannot actually <laughs> write the review because based on the abstract, I thought I would be able to review the mm-hmm. manuscript. Mm-hmm. And then I get it. And sometimes, you know, I have to email the, seat, the editor and say, this is beyond my expertise. Or I'll yeah. say, I could only assess figures one through three. So I did that. You're on mm-hmm. your own for four to seven. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> and, and sometimes you, you go out and you find new, um, new reviewers. So that takes more time. Mm-hmm. And so the senior editor does exercise a lot of judgment in about whether or not the manuscript should be returned for review, rejected, or published as it is. Yeah. So then what happens when one reviewer really doesn't like the manuscript and then another one really likes it? And who makes the call? How do you go about judging? So the call is made by the senior editor. Now, not liking a manuscript is different from a manuscript having flaws, right? So this is where the senior editor has to exercise their judgment. So this is why we need experienced um, persons. Sometimes mm-hmm. you, you read between the lines in a review and you realize, well, maybe philosophically there's a disagreement, but there may not actually be a problem with the methodology or the data yeah. interpretation. Mm-hmm. And so as a senior editor, you have to make the call about what you want to do with that manuscript. Are you going to publish it? Or sometimes you may need to call in a third reviewer, get a different set of eyes, a different opinion yeah. a different expert view, and then you make a decision. So yeah. the senior editors spend actually quite a bit of time and effort in trying to make good decisions about what should be published. Wow, I had no idea that this process was so elaborate. It's crazy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so let's say that Tiff and me wrote a paper together. We've submitted, we've submitted it in NCBI, and... Um, the senior editor has um, found reviewers, and the reviewers came back. But we are reading those comments, and we've all been there. Reviewer number two, 
I mean, we all know who reviewer number two is, but who are they actually? Who is the reviewer that is always asking us for additional experiments? That would be you. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. So remember, the reviewers are the people sitting to your left and your right and front and behind you. So reviewer number two asking for those uh, um, additional difficult experiments is probably your colleague. <laughs> so, damn colleagues, damn. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's it's not the senior editors doing it, right? So mm -hmm. it's we're doing it to ourselves. I see people complaining about it all the time, and I'm like, who is reviewing our papers? We are reviewing our papers. We are the ones acting as the famous reviewer number two. But sometimes it is reviewer number one who's <laughs> the problematic. Um. Again, remember that it's just sometimes a difference of opinion. I have seen reviews where they are asking for more experiments, not because there's anything wrong with what is presented, mm -hmm. but because the reviewer has become excited about the work and is thinking about next steps, you know, yeah. what I want to see next. So they, they, they're getting caught up and they're asking, well, what about this background? And what about these lines? And what if you knock out this gene? Yeah. But that doesn't mean that the current manuscript is not suitable for publication. Yeah. So again, <laughs> even when you get these comments back, you should read them carefully because sometimes they're not actual criticisms of the current work. Mm -hmm. If you pass them carefully enough, you can come up with a response where you say, you know, I agree with reviewer number two. Those would be excellent experiments. Mm -hmm. However, they are beyond the scope of the current study. Yeah. that we're publishing. Yeah. And so that, that's a fair response, you know. I mean, I work with a lot of genes that have um, embryonically lethal effects. People keep asking me to make crosses. I'm mm -hmm. like, but how do you cross two dead plants? <laughs> 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 so, you know, I get the comments back. I say, thank you, great suggestion. If we had the material, mm -hmm. we would be able to make the crosses. Yeah. However, doesn't exist, so thank you for the suggestion. Great idea, we agree. You don't, you don't ever just say to them, you're basically asking me to cross two dead plants. This is a terrible suggestion. Why did you say that? <laughs> well, you know, I too have to get my papers published. So I, I, have, to be, I have to be careful how I respond to the reviewers. <laughs> but yes, so, so sometimes, you know, you, there are ways to handle um, all of these. And the senior editors, after they've been doing this for a while, a lot of them have served on other boards, they, they can read the reviews mm -hmm. and basically pass what's happening um, in a reviewer's comments. And so sometimes you, you get back comments and you're like, but these seem all negative. Why are they telling me to revise and resubmit? It's because the senior editor has to pass on the reviews to you, but the senior editor okay. understands what's going on and is willing to give you the opportunity to make some changes and yeah. still publish the work. Mm -hmm. I will say one thing a senior editor does do, the only changes that senior editors should make to actual reviews are to remove personal identifying information yeah. or ad hominem attacks on, um, on authors. So Does that you know, happen? Unfortunately, it does. It's not a common occurrence, but we, we try to make sure that the reviews are strictly about the manuscript in front of the reviewer and that they don't, you know, try to um, 
belittle or demean the authors of the manuscripts. So mm -hmm. we do keep an eye out for that and we try to remove any such comments. You know, things like, I've reviewed this paper three times and over my dead body, is it ever going to be published? As a senior <laughs> editor, I would remove a statement like that yeah. and simply address the science. Mm -hmm. that's, yeah. that's really important. Thank you for doing all that. <laughs> it's an important work. Um, yeah, I really uh, like um, your mentioning that actually we are all the reviewer number two. I think that's so important and, and also to bear in mind that actually as a purpose of a review is to how to better the science. I, I really appreciate that perspective and thanks for that great reminder. And um, I think kind of thinking along the lines of, of that and also commenting more um, like on the um, equity and inclusion perspective, what do you think um, the exclusion or, or excluding or including reviewers has um, has a, an influence on this? And yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So, by including reviewers with diverse perspectives, you can actually get views of papers that papers that you didn't have in the past. So for instance, um, you may get somebody who's, who's working in the field, in, in the science field, the topic area, but who's actually working in the field. And they will have the perspective that this paper may be small, it may be only four figures, but this has been a hard problem and the solutions will have great impact on people working in the fields, in the actual mm -hmm. fields, in the actual hands-on day-to-day work v versus an academic who's thinking, well, they don't have a mechanism, they're not showing the interactions, this is not so, you know, MPMI-ish. But then you might have a, a, another reviewer with that first perspective that I mentioned who sees the value of the work for people who are actually working day-to-day -day in the field. So that's why getting this diversity um, is important. Um, nowadays, fortunately, I think all across science, we're moving more and more into how we can translate our basic findings into applications. Yeah. And I think more and more diverse perspectives on how that can be achieved will be very helpful to all the journals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's, that's really good to hear and it's really amazing that um, different perspectives from basically all over the world are considered in this reviewing process and that we are working together as a scientific community to not only communicate our science professionally, but also make it better and help each other as being reviewers to get our papers to that next level that we want to reach, that, that we have the potential to reach, basically. Uh, yes. We have finished all of our questions so far. All so right. Erin, take a deep breath. We have audience questions. Thank Ooh, you. Exciting. As a reminder, uh, there's a little grid uh, QR code on the slide if you have more questions that come up. We have a great set of them. Um, I'm going to ask uh, and kind of forward them to different people. So the first question comes, and I'm going to apologize for, I forgot to ask how to pronounce your names. And I am a person whose name has been mispronounced many, many times. And so I have empathy for this, and I'm also probably going to mess it up. So um, the first question is from Ping Tao Ding, assistant professor at the Institute of Biology in, I don't even know how to say, Leiden, Leiden, Univers Leiden, Leiden sounds right. Leiden. Le thank you. 
Um, <laughs> what's the target audience of the podcast? Is it general, the general public, the scientific community? And how do we decide on narratives for different target audiences? I'll talk about the target audience, and then maybe I'll swap it to you guys to talk about narratives. Mm -hmm. So the target audience, when you develop um, a podcast in general, you want to think about your target audience. And so when we developed this one, we thought the audience should be somebody who is a graduate student in the MPMI community. So a graduate student who would be sitting here maybe in this room. Mm -hmm. And because our community is international, and because we study all sorts of things from the molecular up to the biosphere, um, what that really means is it should be comprehensible to an undergraduate who has majored in some biology field. Somebody who's graduated from college in some sort of biology adjacent field. And so that is our target audience. Um, to try and make it be broad. One of the nice things is I teach at a college, so we don't have graduate students. We only have undergraduates, so we could pilot a few early podcast episodes and say, does this make sense to you? Did we use jargon you don't understand? Is this weird? Um, so that's the target audience, but as anyone who started a podcast will know, you will have a target audience in your mind, but then your audience will be much broader than that because we're on Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts, so it's going to be a whole range of people who listen to the podcast um, just because because they found it, because their cousin is on it, because they live in the city that somebody lives in. Um, and so we, so that's, that's sort of our target. Um, we're trying, it doesn't necessarily end up being the scientific community either. And so mm -hmm. I'm gonna turn it over to you guys to talk about how do we think about narrative story. Yeah, so um, with MPMI, or actually with microgreens, we want to tell the story of the science, but also the story behind the science. Um, we, we read the papers that are published in MPMI, and we talk to people in conferences, so you will see us around, and we will ask you a bunch of questions because we are probing for the new questions that we want to address, the new stories we want to tell. Um, because we want to make people excited about plant science. We want to make people interested and inspire them to do the same thing for undergraduate researchers who are exploring their possibilities, um, for graduate students who are working in this field, in this area, and also for you out there, for everyone basically, to tell us what we are doing as a scientific community. But we also want to highlight the people behind the science because Everyone has a story to tell. Every paper you publish actually has a story. Think about it. There is, we, we've heard people that are doing science in their garage. We've heard people that, are, um, that have been bitten by spiders or mosquitoes while they were sampling in the field. Like, that is what we want to hear. We want to hear you. Um, because we think it is so important to give people representation from all over the world and this is why we want to include as much DEI as possible in microgreens as well to give people the stage for representation because everyone can become um, a science communicator or engaged in science or interested in science. Yeah, and I think like adding to that as well is, is that when we, when we want to, when we're talking about narratives and stories, right? We one of the things I think when when Dominique and I were onboarded by Raka, um, she really kind of 
said one of the reasons she started this is to tell the untold stories. Um, and so I think that is also something really important when, when we um, like listen through like recorded interviews or just read like a, a paper or press releases even, we just like kind of often ask ourselves that question, what, what are the stories that are not being told? And I think that is often like a good point to start with thinking about the narrative. Um, and then we also don't want to just um, curate like one uh, and show only one narrative. We want to try to, for example, one podcast uh, share one perspective of um, a similar kind of mechanism, but then um, think, okay, let's try and cover something in like a, f a few podcasts later about mm -hmm. a different perspective. Maybe it's like a, a same um, pa pathway, but then yeah. we want to show that, oh, there could be a different way of thinking about it. could be a different metaphor even that we use. Um, and we have that actually recently. And so that was, th these are how we go about thinking about narratives in our podcast, I think. Yeah, I'll tell one last thing is when I started this podcast, I um, went to a podcast boot camp school in New York and it was the day of one of the solar eclipses. And I remember our first assignment was to go on the street and to interview people. And we walked down on the streets of Brooklyn. There were so many people out in the afternoon and kids had made little uh, things out of cereal boxes. I ran into a nurse who brought her x-ray film so she could look up at the eclipse. Um, there were people looking at it straight and fortunately we could hand them eclipse glasses. <laughs> Um, but it really reinforced this idea that science is for everyone, that there really shouldn't be a gatekeeping to science, that we are born with inquisitiveness and wonder about the world. And so I think that is part of what we hope to capture in microgreens too. Um, we have a few questions about publishing um, and a couple of, a few of them are in the same vein. So um, with this idea of thinking about plagiarism and artificial intelligence. So Dennis Halterman of USDA Madison, Wisconsin, and Amelia Lovelace of the Sainsbury of TSL both asked, um, uh, Tessa mentioned a plagiarism check before review. Is there any software, does MPMI use software to identify image manipulation or duplicated images or fake data? <laughs> she rolls her eyes. Ah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so policy, um, currently the APS journals do not accept AI-generated manuscripts or texts for publication. So that's something that we need to be aware of. It's an ongoing discussion um, among the editors of the journals, but APS does not want AI-generated manuscripts um, being published. Currently, the detection system consists of one Tim Friesen, who's sitting over here. <laughs> um, he, he reads the papers. Fortunately, he uses um, AI himself, so he's familiar with the sort of language structure that is being used. So right now, we don't have software that's being used to detect AI. We're relying on humans to notice the structure that is um, AI produced. So hopefully in the future, we will revisit these policies because as you can see, you've heard it mentioned several times today, people are using AI, it's going to happen. We need to figure out what our policy is and adjust it accordingly. So we are getting creative, original science 
but we are also keeping up with the times. You know, if all mm -hmm. the big publishers are accepting AI, then as a small, you know, journal, <laughs> is it realistic that we can say and um, have a blanket no AI policy? But right now we don't have software for it. Image manipulation similarly is li largely in the hands of the editors and the reviewers. So as a reviewer, we're asking you to look carefully at the manuscript and see if you noticed any image um, duplication. The images are challenging, <laughs> even for software to pick up on what's going on. You get a lot of false negatives um, with the software for looking at, at image manipulation. So we, we're definitely still relying on humans, but that's something that we need to consider as we get more and more, um, more and more micrographs and, and these sorts of data being submitted to MPMI. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm going to add, uh, this goes along with Karishma Kumari, a PhD scholar at the Max Planck, also asked, how does ChatGPT influence your work? But, and you sort of addressed it in terms of manuscripts, but I could imagine if I'm a reviewer and I'm reading a paper and I don't want to spend the day that you have spent finessing your sentence, I would love to just make a bullet point list of things and then say, chat GPT, please make this pretty so I can send it off. What are your thoughts on things like that? Well, we also have to be careful with the privacy issues around this AI software, right? You shouldn't take somebody's manuscript and upload it into one of these and say, write a critique or a summary. I mean, I don't think we have, um, what's the word, copyright, intellectual property rights over manuscripts like that. So I would strongly urge that you do not upload manuscripts or proprietary information, stuff like that. It should not be going into um, these, these um, AI software packages. So that, that's a big no <laughs> for me. I would say, you know, better to submit a bad um, sentence than to mess up somebody's publication by putting it out there on chat GPT. So stay away from them for now because you never know where the stuff is going to end up. Once you uploaded it, it's out of your hands. You really have no control over what happens to it from there. So, yeah, yes. That's a very clear message. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, I, so then a few questions. Um, one specific one, somebody asked what qualifications are required to be a reviewer. So you said postdocs could review. Can graduate students, like what, what are you looking for in choosing reviewers? Great question. So it actually depends on the topic area. There are some fields that are moving rapidly. So for instance, um, people using building computational tools to analyze big data sets for you know, microbiomes from the soil or wherever. Sometimes they, these are grad students who have written program and they software and they, they are the only people with insights into how certain things work. So they would be the ones who are qualified to review a manuscript. I mean, being a grad student does not preclude you if you have the expertise. But in a situation like that, I would be hesitant to ask the graduate student because, again, of that experience, they have not really seen or re received a lot of reviews themselves. So while they may have the technical know-how, I would be more comfortable asking the research advisor to review the manuscript and then being very happy if the advisor includes the graduate student on reviewing the technical aspects of the manuscript 
and then having the senior scientists serving a sort of supervisory role, guiding um, the, the student about what they should or shouldn't say in the manuscript. So sort of like a cooperative review would be quite appropriate in a situation like that. Um, Raka, you were giving us this anecdote where somebody was suggesting that you know, the paper should not say anything about structure because there was no crystal structure presented. So, so that's the sort of um, you know, the view you can have from a junior scientist who doesn't understand that every paper does not need a crystal structure. To be clear, that was an undergrad who was co-reviewing a paper with me. So. But yes, but yes, perspective is important. So the qualification is indeed your expertise, but that's why we want the experience. So postdocs and higher who've been around, who've seen more reviews, who may be a little more familiar with what can and cannot be done, what is reasonable and unreasonable to ask for. This is why we, we, we prefer reviewers who are more senior. And again, a question along these lines, like what's the workload of being, oh, I guess this is the what's the workload. Of, so I guess a question about editors. A um, few questions for Tessa about an editor. Uh, what's the most important, most valuable skill or experience you've acquired by being an editor. This is Victoria Armour from the University of Exeter. Um, and additionally, somebody asked, uh, Ka Waima of the Max Planck Institute of Plant Breeding Research asked, what's the workload of being an editor? How many papers do you have to handle per month? Um, how much time does this take? According to the description, it should take you 10 hours a month as an editor. In practice, it varies a lot. Um, as a senior editor, I would say on average, you will handle one to two manuscripts per month. Um, it's not that many. As the editor-in-chief, you're handling everything that comes through the journal. So Tim's probably spends, I don't know, 60, 80 hours a week on, on, on MPMI duties in addition to his day job. Um, oh, wow. But associate... <laughs> I don't know if Tim wanted me telling you this, so my apologies. <laughs> the editors, the editors-in-chief also spend a lot of time on the business aspect of the journal. So they're not only handling the manuscript. We also spend a lot of time, for instance, getting things like this ready for the meetings to hand out and, and doing stuff like that. So it all adds up. For uh, if you were, let's say, a postdoc and you were interested in reviewing manuscripts, you get on a manuscript list. I would say you could expect to review maybe one or two manuscripts a year. That would be the extent of people making demands on your time. As an associate editor, if you do get asked to be an associate editor, that number may increase to maybe one article every three months or if your area is high in demand and you really are an expert with skills, you may be asked to review maybe six manuscripts a year. As a senior editor, the requirements increase. You handle one or two manuscripts a month. Mm -hmm. So as your experience grows, it takes you less and less time to do some of the tasks, right? So yeah. right now, I can look at a manuscript and kind of get a feel for what's happening in there. And then there are certain things that I look for immediately to make a judgment about whether or not it should be sent out for review. So I can look right away and say, what are the figures looking like? Are the statistics 
you know, up to standard? Is there a real story there? Do the images look like they've been manipulated? Mm-hmm. Does the language fit? I mean, it's, it's not good practice to send out very poorly written manuscripts to reviewers. So if the language is difficult to read, hard to understand, then most times I will say, could you please you know, edit the language before I send this out for review? So yeah, the, the amount of work scales with your experience in doing the job. But we try to make it manageable because everybody involved is a volunteer. Yeah. I'm going to ask this last question, and then we'll probably open it up to other people who have presented to answer questions. So this last question is from Jean Harris, who perhaps could have answered this herself, um, which is all of you are, and this is going to be for everyone, so maybe we'll go down the table. Um, we'll start on this side, so you have time. Um, all of you are 100% volunteer. You're putting a lot of time and mental energy into this. What motivates you to do this work for MPMI? And so I guess I'll start. Um, I, I, guess I have been a member of this community for a long time. When I was a graduate student, this was the first meeting I went to. And I think this is where I found a home for, um, for my discipline, but also for people. And so over the years, it has been really fun to meet people. I am at a small liberal arts college. There's only one of me at my institution. I am a, I'm the cell biologist, if that is even a thing. Um, and so to have community is really important. And so I love being able to interview people and talk to people. And we see that. If we look at metrics across who listens to the podcast, there's often one person in somewhere um, and only that person. And so the hope is that it uh, can, some of this community that I've come to love uh, can be broadened to a bunch of other people too. Okay, so for me, um, and this goes back to the question that I didn't answer about what have I learned by being an editor-in-chief or an an editor at all at MPMI. So when I first started, I will admit that my motives were quite selfish. I thought that by reviewing manuscripts, I would learn how to write better papers. I would see, you know, how people answered questions. I would basically learn from other people. And so that is how I approached it initially. I would see and I would learn. So, so that's my view. Not, there's nothing wrong with that. At that stage in your career as a postdoc, that is perfectly valid reason to want to review manuscripts. And then I found that as I did it more and more, I started to value um, seeing the editors, sorry, seeing the authors take my comments and actually improve the manuscript. And I felt that I was in contributing to science in that way. So it's not necessarily my publication, but behind the scenes, I'm anonymous. It didn't matter. But I saw that I could contribute a lot more to many more manuscripts to actually help the science and the publications get better. And for me, that was very valuable as a scientist. So I was not only training people in my lab, but I also um, was helping other people. And one thing that stood out to me, a, a, a junior scientist figured out that I was a reviewer for his manuscript. And he came to me and he said, thank you so much for your review. It was critical, but it was so helpful. And I felt like I was in a classroom learning stuff. And my paper got so much better because I was able to make the changes that you suggested. So 
thank you for you know being honest and telling me what was wrong but you also helped me make it so much better so for me that was very gratifying and as i moved um up to become a senior editor and an associate editor-in-chief it's even more and more apparent that for representation me having a seat at the table matters right so you can tell from my accent that I am not an American. <laughs> you can ask me afterwards where I'm from. So I, I have a lot of international perspective. I've been in the US though for a long time. I am in a, I belong to a number of minority groups. <laughs> so for me, having a seat at the table is important that way as well. You know, um, people may see my name on email. They don't recognize me in person. It happens to me. Every time I go to a meeting and then they're like, oh, you're that person. <laughs> and I, I get a kick out of it, you know, because I guess in their mind they've drawn a picture of who I must look like. And then when they meet me, they're a little surprised. They're like, you're not what I was picturing. I'm like, no, yeah, I'm quite short, am I not? <laughs> <laughs> so for me, it, it's important to represent, have a seat at the table. I think I've been helpful with, to Jean and Tim in, you know, broadening the conversation, changing perspectives. Um, and so we're also on the, the ISMPMI board. I speak up when I think things are not going the way they should. So for me, the, the, the job has been very rewarding. It, it's all volunteer. I put a lot of time and effort into it. I commiserate with young people asking to be paid for their time and talent. But at this stage in my career, I think the reward for me is not monetary. It's seeing science get better and us as human beings and scientists get better. Yeah, well, thank, thanks for that. <laughs> That's a tough act to follow. Yeah, it is. Um, I think the only way to follow is just to share more of like my own personal perspective, journey and, and story of how I got involved and why I got involved. Uh, with the MPMI community as an AFE. I think when I first read about this role as an AFE, um, uh, I, I just thought, okay, like that's, it's really interesting. It's a great way to learn about all this as we talked about the black box of publishing or what goes behind the scenes. Um, and and I, when I then, like I remember after the first meeting, um, as the AFEs got onboarded, I really felt this, um, as Raka already said, the sense of community. Um, and I think it's important actually um, to, re to uh, as a reminder also, I didn't know that there could be differences in um, publishing, that there could be community-based journals as well as for-profit journals. And that like, I think f through the way, uh, the conversations we've had today, um, you can really see that resonate throughout, that it is about, um, the, even uh, the process of reviewing is about how do you better um, the science, the, the community's science, right? And I think that um, was a perspective that kind of what I did not expect when I started. And then, um, then I really kind of felt um, I was able to um, see the importance of it and, and then kind of thinking into like a smaller sub-community of microgreens, I feel very nurtured by Raka. Like our meetings are just very enjoyable. There's always a human element to it. And I think that's also what's, what keeps me 
in the uh, and and of course like then the wider group as well and having seeing being able to for the first time meet all the AFEs. Um, I I'm the only European represent, uh, and so I think that's also really important. Um, yes, and so I I'd like yeah rep following also on what Tessa said about representation um, is is also hugely important, and I I feel like we have to start somewhere and I think it's a very um, receptive community that we have at MPMI and I think um, the more voices, the better. And so, yeah. I guess I have to follow up now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did my PhD in, um, in another community, in the phage community, and it was actually one of my advisors who directed me to a tweet from Jean Harris talking about science communication. And my advisor knew that I am deeply engaged in science communication, because um, during my PhD, I took an additional three-year course on science communication and how to make podcasts specifically. And I never imagined that this community is so warm and so welcoming. The more I get engaged, um, the better I feel about it, and the more I'm excited about it, about putting in the effort and time, because making a podcast is a lot of work. It starts with building a story, interviewing people, um, editing the audio. Um, for a podcast that is about 20 minutes, it's it's 20 times it, um, at least at least um, so it, it it is a huge commitment but I really like to do it because I want to communicate the science the exciting science that is happening within this community to the broad audience get people to know what we are doing um, and at the same time giving representation um, because as Raka said before every there are people listening to this podcast from all corners of the world. It is so exciting to see the metrics. And I, and also the people who are not able to attend these meetings, like we, we are very fortunate to be here today. And this is why we wanna do this podcast too, to give them also the opportunity to listen about the science that is happening on the other side of the world. And for people who are less fortunate, um, who are not able to, to join us here today or to hear the, the exciting talks that we um, are able to hear um, during this meeting. And I think it is very important, um, and that's basically why I'm here and why I'm so engaged and putting in all those hours of uh, tedious um snipping, and I've <laughs> introduced a lot of ums myself, so I have to snip them out later. Um, and yeah, that's... Uh, why I'm doing this work. Great, thank you. I'm gonna give you all like a round of applause. In a thank you for listening to this live recording at the ISMPMI meeting in Providence, Rhode Island. We hope you have enjoyed learning more about the process of publishing a paper and what happens behind the scenes at MPMI. We thank Dr. Tessa Bird-Smith for joining us. We also want to thank our amazing co-host and mentor, Professor Raka Mitra, for all her time and effort in creating this podcast and guiding us. We thank Tim Friesen for keeping us going, and we thank you for listening. Do you want to hear more about plants, microbes, and the people who study them? Check out our previous episode, 
where we talk about friends and foe, or what about DEI in the lab? Or stay tuned for our next episode.